are going to uh, revisit our Exodus series. We've been in a series on Exodus for quite some time. And for those of you who've been around Spark, you know that we don't like to go fast. And when we do go fast, it's sometimes a difficult thing for us because there's so much that we skip over, so much that we just kind of have to skim through. And we just simply believe that this text that we have, this text that we revere, this text that we love called the Bible, has stuff in it from thousands of years that riches of wealth, insight, wisdom, and we don't ever want to skip over any of that stuff. And, and on occasion, that's required just simply because of time. And as we get back into Exodus, you can see that I've changed the cover graphic. This is actually a picture of Mount Sinai, uh, the traditional location out in the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt. And we're starting to shift now in chapter 19 to one of the popular, well-known epic pieces of this story, the meeting at Mount Sinai. People know about the plagues. People know about Pharaoh's uh, son dying in the 10th plague. People know about the parting of the Red Sea, and people know about the Mount Sinai. So we're getting to that new segment in our narrative, and that draws together all of the history and all the teachings uh, that we've gone through and all of the events and the activities of the previous 18 chapters and now we're getting to this 19th chapter. And so it's this big epic event of the giving of the Ten Commandments, the meeting at Mount Sinai, cloud and smoke and thunder and voices and Moses going up the mountain and down the mountain, which is really uh, difficult to think about if this is the mountain. That mountain is at 8,000 feet elevation. So when you read your text and Moses goes up the mountain, then he comes down the mountain, he goes up the mountain, down the mountain. When we were there, we needed camels to assist us in thinking about Moses at uh, this particular time, he's probably about 80 years old. It's like, oh my goodness, this guy he was either extremely fit or we, we might have a different mountain. So anyway, um, we can talk about that later. As we start, I wanted to do something a little bit different at, at the beginning of this particular message, which is to give you some space, some quiet. Life has been very busy. Your Facebook feed has probably been blowing up with all sorts of crazy things. Work transitions, relationships, families, children, all sorts of disruptions, changes in location, moves. There's all sorts of different shifts and upheavals that happen in life. And as we get to this particular message, I thought, let's start by just pausing for a moment. And I want to give you some you and God time to just stop and ask yourself the question, where is your life in the midst of all these transitions, in the midst of all of these things that are happening, in the midst of all of these disruptions or the chaos or the uncertainties that have been in the past or the uncertainties that might be coming in the future, just pause for a moment and ask yourself the question, are our eyes, as we just sang actually, fixed solely and completely on these issues, these problems, these, the, the things that are right before us? Or is there something that a church could remind us about, shifting our eyes upward and seeing what God may be doing in our spirits, in our hearts, and in our midst. So whatever posture you need to take in your heart and your soul, physically, some people like to kneel, some people like to sit, some people like to stand, whatever posture you need to take, we try to be very free here. Just pause for a moment. Consider all of the disruptions 
Consider all of the transitions. Consider all of the uncertainties. Consider all of the things that are going to give you pause about security, safety, joy, purpose, meaning. All of the things that get in the way of all of those things that we so desperately need and want in our lives. And just ask yourself the question, where are you and the Lord in that? Is your eyes and your focus and your heart and your soul so captivated by all of those things that there isn't any room or there isn't any hope or there isn't any wiggle room for God to get in there to walk with you, to redeem whatever situation and circumstance you might happen to be. So pause for a moment. Consider deeply. What are those things that could be hindering the great peace, joy, and redemption that God so desperately wants, desires, and is striving for in your life? And have you allowed God, have you allowed the Lord of this universe to sit with you in that? To wrap his arms around you and walk with you through it? To come down from heaven, to meet you here on earth, to say and to remind you that you are not alone, that I am with you. That my spirit and my presence is all around. And Father God, as we begin this time together, and I'm so beautifully reminded of the voice of my child crying out, Daddy, may we all be reminded that that is the intimacy and the joy of knowing you as our Father. And that even in the midst of our transitions and shifts and tumultuous work and life and relationships, that we can cry out to you, our daddy, and say, come and meet us here. Be with us, redeem us, walk with us. Bring your peace and your shalom here. And I pray in your name. Amen. I'd like to share with you some teachings from Exodus 19 that I think are relevant to the brief exercise that we did entitled The Second Exodus. We know about the first Exodus. I'm going to suggest to you that this particular passage in chapter 19 is going to introduce a second Exodus. I wanted to read an extensive portion, but the chapter is fairly lengthy. So let's just read a couple of verses, verses 16 and 17, um, and then focus in on this verse and then share with you a little bit of my thoughts and reflections that I think are important. Uh, On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning, as well as a thick cloud on the mountain, and a blast of a trumpet so loud that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet Elohim, to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. As I mentioned, chapter 19 brings us to the famous Mount Sinai. Uh, There's tons of churches called Mount Sinai. Uh, This is one of the most prominent 
travel locations, a tourist location. Uh, there's a, a lot of uh, activity that happens here. So this is the mountain, as I mentioned before. I apologize about the resolution, but it's about 8,000 feet uh, high. And there's, of course, a lot of debate. If you're around Spark for a while, you know that we try to do the history and archaeology really well. Here's the reality. Nobody really knows which mountain it is. There's actually several contenders. There's some contenders in the south of the Sinai. There's some contenders on the east side of Egypt, much closer to the border of modern-day Israel. And then, of course, there's some contenders all over in other particular ports. This is the traditional site of Mount Sinai, and so that's going to form our image in our picture for this particular teaching and for the season that we are coming in. Because 19 brings these people to the foot of this place, to the foot of Mount Sinai. They have gone through what could only be described as some of the most harrowing events that any community, any people could probably go through. I mean, think about it. 400 years of slavery, crying out. Remember a couple teachings ago, just crying out. Not even crying out to God, but simply crying out. Said Akkad, there's this outcry of pain and suffering that comes from the people as a result of the harsh labor and the slavery and the oppression that was coming from the Egyptians. And just when you think that it's not going to happen, some person comes along who God says is going to be like God to Pharaoh. So Moses, as kind of an enfleshment of this God, comes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. So the people are super excited about it, but not so excited about this plan because as the people experience these plagues, these, remember, signs, the Bible doesn't call them miracles, I misspoke earlier, these signs, there's telling Pharaoh about the actions that he has done. Remember, the Israelites aren't so happy about this. Why? Because as these signs and these plagues come upon Egypt, Pharaoh only makes their life more difficult. So think about this history. Eventually, the 10th plague comes. Pharaoh's heart is not necessarily softened. He just gives in. And he says, fine, you can go. Get out of here. In fact, my son is dead. I don't even want to see you. You have become disgusting in my eyes. So they leave. And then they have this great event at the parting of the Sea of Reeds, which is really important to call it the Sea of Reeds because Moses at the beginning of the story was placed in the reeds. So he passed through the reeds before the entire nation passed through the Sea of Reeds. And can you imagine going through that, seeing that, experiencing that, and then you get to this particular place where is the beginning of the wanderings through the desert. Again, as we've talked about before, you would think that these people would get it by now. After seeing the ten plagues, after seeing the parting of the Reed Sea, you would think, okay, I get it. God's in charge. God is huge. God is able and capable to do all of these things. But yet, we will see, and as you know, as many people are very aware of through um, famous movies and through telling of the stories, even here, the people still don't get it. They still don't understand, and there's the golden calf incidents, which we will get to in a little bit. This is the beginning of what is known as the Ten Commandments. Chapter 20 introduces the Ten Commandments. Now, as we start to get to chapter 19 and chapter 20 with this famous giving of what you see here as the Ten Commandments, there's a problem that we have in talking about these because the Ten Commandments comes with a lot of cultural baggage. As soon as I say Ten Commandments, I'm sure there's a myriad of things that pop into your mind. Well, most of all, this is what pops into your mind. We have images and pictures of 
you know, the size of the tablets. Some people actually suggest the tablets aren't actually much bigger than this. Um, there's all sorts of different things. People are fighting to get the Ten Commandments in certain places. People are arguing about the importance of the Ten Commandments as the foundation of constitutional law. All sorts of things that happen with the Ten Commandments. And even the Ten Commandments movie and all the media and Charlton Heston. And it just gets all muddied. So there's a whole bunch of cultural baggage that comes along with this. So before we get to 19 and 20 with the giving of this what we will call the Ten Commandments, but you'll see it's probably not the best verbiage, what I'd like to do is share with you a couple things that the Ten Commandments are not, which is going to set up what 19 is for and the reason why chapter 19 is important. The first thing, and I know this might come as a shock to some people, first of all, the Ten Commandments is not a list of moral codes, do's and don'ts. Now you're saying, but wait a second. It says, thou shalt not. Yes, in your Bible it says, thou shalt not. It says it in the King James, thou shalt not. It says it in the NIV, don't. Um, it says it, you know, in Hebrew, lo. Um, it says it in Spanish, no. Uh, it says it in all sorts of different languages, do not do these things. But the problem with this understanding of the Ten Commandments as the moral code that a lot of people have suggested is that if we didn't have the Ten Commandments, then we wouldn't know what is right or what is wrong. We wouldn't know that murder is wrong. We wouldn't know that adultery is wrong. We wouldn't know that bearing false witness is wrong. We wouldn't know that taking time off for the Sabbath is wrong. And so this is some of the cultural baggage that comes along. We see the Ten Commandments. They're there. They're very clearly articulated. Do this. Don't do this. And so we, we conclude this is brilliant. We had no clue what was right or what was wrong until we get to the Ten Commandments. The problem is that the scriptures don't set it up that way. We see all throughout Genesis and all throughout the beginning of Exodus, we know intuitively that there are things that are very right and very wrong. At the very beginning of the story, in chapter 4, we have the killing of Abel by his brother Cain. And Cain knows that this is wrong. And the people that he is going to all of a sudden be ostracized to, they all know it's wrong. And so at the very beginning of the Genesis story, there is already a moral code. It exists. The biblical narrative seems to indicate that because every single one of us have been breathed in by the Spirit of God from Genesis chapters 1 and 2, that God has breathed into us, the Spirit of God actually lives within each and every one of us. Uh, some modern philosophers have equated this to conscience, that every single one of us intuitively know through training, through development, and through community, but also intrinsically what is right and what is wrong. And if the Ten Commandments is purely or merely a moral code, then we have a problem because we have a lot of people that came before the Ten Commandments that how can they be held accountable? So the Ten Commandments, or this particular chapter, chapter 20, and, and the giving of these do's and do nots is really not a moral code. It's not, the, it's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's not a list of rights and wrongs, although it includes that. The second thing that the Ten Commandments are not, it's not a condition to who the Israelites are and to who the Israelites will be. It's not the condition that if you keep these, then you will be my people. If you do all of these things, then we will be in relationship. If you obey all these commands, then I will give you my grace and my love. It is not this. Why? The Ten Commandments, the giving of the law, the giving of the Torah, the giving of all of these things comes 
after God's redemption, God's freedom from Egypt. God's love and his grace has always come before that which we now take upon ourselves to live behaviorally in this world. So the Ten Commandments are not a conditional if. It's not the do this, and if you can do this and do this right, then we will be in relationship. No, it's actually the other way around. It is because I have carried you as a father carries his son all through that desert. Because I have lifted you up, Exodus 19 says, on eagle's wings and have freed you, liberated you, redeemed you, taken you as my own. It's because that relationship exists that we now have formulated the agreement upon which our relationship will live, thrive, and be in this world. So two things, and I know they're very maybe jarring for some. Not a moral code. We know that morals exist within us. We know that God is breathed within us. And then we have the biblical chronology that makes things difficult if the Ten Commandments is the moral code. And then second, most important, these are not conditional statements. These are not conditional statements. If you do this, then we will be in relationship. And I find that a lot of people spend a lot of time thinking about the Ten Commandments and thinking about the laws of the Bible in exactly these ways. We have to do it, we have to do it this particular way, and the Bible says we have to do it in this way, and if we don't, then there's going to be something wrong. Well, there's a couple problems with this. There's the idea that these are legal mandates or moral codes manifests itself in all sorts of dysfunctions. One of them is the famous one, and for those of you who maybe have been in church for a while or have been around faith for a while, if you've ever had conversations with somebody who's not of faith and then you, maybe you're trying to uh, encourage them or challenge them to consider faith, one of the great objections is, well, why should I? Because if I take upon your faith, if I make a conversion experience or decide to follow Jesus or submit my life to God, all my fun is going to go away. I am not going to be able to do all of the great things that I love to do if I decide to do this. So this is one dysfunctional way in which laws and mandates manifest themselves. Oh, I don't want to become a Christian. I don't want to take on this whole discipleship of Jesus. I don't want to have anything to do with God because that's going to kill everything. That's going to be, I mean, and of course, when you're a teenager, it's like, you mean I'm not going to have to have sex anymore? Is that really what you want? No, see, I I can't even fathom that. So why would I even consider uh, taking on your faith? So that's one side of the equation. If this is just simply a list of codes that are conditional statements. The second and the converse side of this is legalism. Legalism. If these are just a list of mandated codes, if this is the way that God has mandated every human being on the face of the planet to live, then if somebody crosses one of those codes, then immediately those within a certain ideology or theology will immediately call people, you are clearly on the outside. You have violated this command. You have broken this rule. You are now on the outside. And legalism begins to slowly creep in with this moralistic thinking. Um, Several sociologists and theologians have actually talked about this extensively, that rather than covenantal relationship, we have changed Christianity or this relationship with God into what they call, are you ready for this? Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic meaning it's only about what you do, what's right and what's wrong, what you don't do and what you do do. And yes, I just said do do. Uh, 
That's the moralism. Therapeutic. I am a Christian or I'm a person of faith because it makes me feel good. And then deism is a big theological term to just simply mean, mean I believe in God, but he doesn't really have anything to do with this world. That comes as a result of thinking about these Ten Commandments and the rest of the laws as simply moral dictates. And then you get to all sorts of other implications. For example, throwing this word around, sin. That sin, this is sin. You've sinned, we've sinned. We've all sinned. Now, I don't want to demean the theological and philosophical importance of sin. Um, it kind of reminds me of a series we did not so long ago. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. And maybe we need to cover what exactly is sin from a biblical perspective. But the way in which it's used frequently that I've seen, that I've felt, I'm sure many of you have experienced, and let's be honest, many of us have actually used it this way, is to cast it out as a way of governing someone's behavior as to right or to what is wrong. Because it's moralistic, because it doesn't add up to exactly what I believe to be the ethical right thing to do, because God clearly says it, and that settles it, you are a sinner, you have sinned. And rather than recognizing sin, oh, see, I'm getting to the whole other talk, rather than recognizing sin as conditional, we recognize sin as behavioral, as something that you have done, which has cast you out of relationship. The other thing that it does is it complicates the idea that you have all these urges and now you get like, I feel this sin coming on and if this is coming, oh my goodness, there must be something wrong with me. And Danielle and I have had multiple conversations with people that say, well, I have this and I, I feel this and I said, I must, there must be something wrong with me. So all of this moralism comes down with a, this sense of shame and condemnation upon who you are. And that's all because we see the Ten Commandments and other passages as do this don't do this. Do this. Don't do this. And clearly God has said this, so this is what you need to do. Pause for a moment. If this is the way that the Bible sets this up, think about the last time you broke a rule. Think about the last time that showed up in your rearview mirror. And given some of the current cultural things that have happened, consider all of the potential emotional things and stuff that's going through your brain when this happens. Think about that. When we sin, when we participate in breaking of the rules, what is the feeling that happens when this happens? What senses go through our mind? And is this fundamentally the purpose of God giving dictates, rules, regulations, Do's, do nots, thou's, shouts, and thou shalt nots. The other side of this is that, well, if it's a list of moral do's and don'ts, then as long as I'm not doing those things, I'm okay. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 6 has this passage. Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. It's this beautiful passage about no drunkenness and be filled with the Spirit. And somebody's saying, well, it wasn't wine that I was drunk on, it was beer. So I'm really good. I didn't violate the command, as long as it wasn't wine. And we begin to parse out all of the variegated ways in which we can say, well, well it says this. So as long as I'm not doing that, then I'm totally good. 
These are behaviors and all that stuff of what I've shared, and I'm sure there's many other anecdotes that we could share. These are all different ways in which that moralism has permeated the ways in which we think about the Ten Commandments and these and other passages. Now, I know some of you are going to be a little concerned with what I'm saying because what it can feel like is that morals and ethics shifts. If it's not clearly black and white, then it must be, well, gray, depends. Um, This is a conversation for a different time. But even within the scriptures, we find that there are certain situations in which certain behaviors are right, and in other situations, behaviors are wrong. So even within your scriptures, we find this. To take the Ten Commandments and other passages like it, and just to clearly delineate it in two particular passages, misses the fullness, the breadth, the wisdom of applying the spirit of covenantal relationship in this world, in the vast, diverse ways in which all of us find ourselves in different, diverse situations. This is a problem. And this is something that I think we need to tear down. This is some of the cultural baggage that I think comes with this that we need to just call out and address. Now, I know some of what I've said you may disagree with. That's beautiful and wonderful. That's part of what this community is about. Well, wait a second, Pastor Kevin. What about this and what about that? That's what this community is about. What I'd like to suggest to you is that the Ten Commandments, far from being just a list of moral do's and don'ts, and definitely far from being conditional statements that you better do these or you are somehow on the outside, the Ten Commandments is essentially a codification, a writing down, a culmination, a coming together of the ultimate, most beautiful, most intimate relationship that there could possibly be between a God and his people and the kind of people that they are going to become in this world. And the reason why we have wedding rings up there is because you know, if you've studied the Old and the New Testaments in the Bible, that marriage is the preeminent example, the preeminent picture of what this covenant relationship is and what God designs and wants it to be. He wants that intimacy, that kind of relationship, not conditioned upon whether or not you do or do this, whether or not we're together or not together, uh, and not just a list of, well, you better do this, you better do that, you better do this, because that a marriage does not make. Some of you are laughing, like, oh yeah, it took me a while to figure that one out. (laughs) Let me give you some hints as to why I think this is more about the covenant and more about relationship and how that all works rather than those previous things. First, three times, God comes down, he descends. If you read chapter 19 very carefully, there are three times that God specifically comes down. The Hebrew word is yared. Everybody say yared. Yared is the root of the Hebrew word. It is the same root from where we get our word Jordan River. The reason why the Jordan River is a river that descends and goes down is because it starts at 9,000 feet at the top of Mount Hermon and ends at the lowest place on earth, 1,200, 1,300 feet below sea level. So that difference in elevation makes the Jordan River go all the way down at a very rapid pace. So the Jordan is a river that descends. And it's also the same word for where we get the word Jared. So anybody named Jared is somebody who goes down, either in weight. (laughs) 
can I tell you, <laughs> can I tell you, I debated for a good 15 minutes whether or not I was going to put that in there. So just let you know. So, you know, you, you, did I make the wrong decision? Thank you, Brina. Okay, excellent. <clears throat> Three times God comes down, and he comes down specifically to give them, here's the key, the words of the covenant. The words of the covenant. He does not come down to give commandments. In fact, the word commandment is missing from this passage. Has anybody ever been to a bar mitzvah? Bar mitzvah is son of the commandments or son of the stipulations. That word mitzvah is missing from this passage. What God comes down to do is to give them the words of the covenant. It's also known as the ten sayings, the ten things, the divine utterances. Now, that phrase, the ten sayings, is translated into the Greek as the decalogue, the ten words or the ten sayings. And it's a beautiful phrase because ten words, that word logos is at the beginning of the gospel of John. In the beginning was the word. So just like God comes down to give them the ten words, and that word is imbued with all sorts of rich meaning about divine purpose and origination and about meaning and all of that uh, reason, logic, all things being put together the way that they're supposed to be put together. So the Gospel of John uses that for Jesus. And that word that comes down to this earth begins to put all of this world together. Anyway, God descends, he comes down, and Moses ascends to the mountain. And it is at the meeting where God comes down and Moses is ascending that this beautiful covenant is met. And that God coming down begins to be this beautiful picture that God is not up there calling you to some sort of moral higher ground, but that God himself is condescending himself to come down and meet you, to come down and be with you, to come down and be in front of your face, literally, and for you to be literally in front of his. And as Moses, as the picture or as the analogy of a priest goes up to meet God, that is when the covenant is met. This is also beautiful because later on in the Gospels, Jesus comes down and he descends into the coming down river, into the Jordan River. So there's all sorts of beautiful resonances. Now, that covenant is made at the foot of this mountain. That covenant is made between God, between Moses and the people. Um, and there's two different kinds of covenants in the ancient world. If you went and Google searched this, you could find all... Sorry, Mark is here. If you went and Yahoo searched this or binged this, I always got to remember that he, I, I got to... We're a very ecumenical group. We, we love all people of all faiths and colors. So um, if you go home and Yahoo this or Google this or whatever, you can find that there's ancient covenants that have been had all throughout uh, the ancient Near East. And there's usually two different kinds of covenants. The covenant between equals, uh, we'd be between two warring parties, or there's covenants between a greater party and a lesser party. And this covenant, what some commentators have suggested, is unlike those two, because what seems to be happening in the God descending down and the Moses going up and meeting face to face is that those two are somehow being melded into a third category. Now, this is very speculative, and some people are not quite sure how to read this, 
But there's something different going on with this passage in which the Moses meeting of God in creating this covenant and creating this relationship is not just between some great party up there and some little party down here. Neither is it between two equals. It's some sort of mix between the two. And I think there's beautiful spiritual resonances that could be had regarding the kind of relationship that God, that Yahweh, the Lord, is wanting to have with us. Now, that's God coming down, creating a covenant, creating some sort of unique, intimate relationship. And this is the other thing that he's trying to do. Again, we talked about how he's not trying to create and establish a bunch of rules. Here's the ultimate purpose. When you think about the Exodus story and the giving of the Ten Commandments in the scope of the full narrative, he's not just simply giving commands. You know what he's trying to do? He's trying to build a people. He's creating a nation. He's creating a group, a community that will ultimately be his representatives to the entire world. Taking the beautiful nature of this relationship, the beautiful nature of that kind of intimacy with God and spreading it to the nations. And this is really, really critical. When we think of the Ten Commandments and all these moral kind of sayings extricated from the grand story, that's when we fall into the moralism. Well, they're clearly just do's and don'ts. This, chapter 19, chapter 20, comes right in a pinnacle part of this grand narrative, the grand story that is being written. God freeing the people, bringing them out, marrying them, taking them as his own, and then sending them out into the world as his representatives. And remember, think about the story. Think about what these people have gone through. Think about the amazing stories that they can tell their children. And those stories are the basis and the foundation for the, what happens at Mount Sinai. I love this picture. Uh, this says, Moses' transport cautioned Joseph's bones. Um, right there, for those of you who know the story from Genesis. The reason why I love this picture is because there's a modern-day imposition upon a very ancient story. Do you see yourself in this story? What were the times when you were in bondage? What were the times where you were enslaved? What were the times when you thought things were going to get better, but as they were getting better, they only got worse? What were those moments where you stood on the shore of a seemingly insurmountable barrier and you were able to pass through and you made it. What's your story? Don't forget your story in the midst of all of these commandments, in the midst of these sayings, in the midst of these moral codes, in the midst of all of that. That's what's so critical to this story. Now, to drive this home even further, again, in chapter 19, there are three things that God says he wants these people to be. A treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. This goes back to what I uh, mentioned before. These are the things that God is trying to do in these people. He's not just trying to make them be good. He's not just trying to get them to behave. He's not just trying to get them to stop doing all these bad things that really tick me off which is oftentimes the way we view these commandments. He's trying to remind them and create within them an identity that says, you are a treasured 
possession. Do you know how valuable you are? Do you know how much I deeply care about you? How, how close you are to my heart? Later, Jesus is going to tell a parable about the kingdom of heaven is like somebody who finds a treasure buried in a field, sells everything that he has, goes and buys that field, and everybody's, you're an idiot. But he knows that inside that field is something so precious, it's worth selling everything for. That's who we are. That's who he wants to remind the Israelites of who they are. You are a treasured possession. You are a kingdom of priests. You are going to be my representatives, the people that stand between what we would call the world and God. You are going to be those people that are going to live in that space and help to mediate that space and to participate in behaviors and traditions and rituals that will bring those two closer together. Jesus later on talks about how we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, bringing together the distance of the world and the distance of God. That's part of who we are. And then the holy nation, separate, apart, distinctly different. And what's, these are really, really key. Those, these 10 commandments come right after God saying, this is what I want of you. And then he says in verse 6, these are the things, these are the sayings, these are the words that you are to speak to the children of Israel. In other words, when we get to chapter 20 and it says, these are the things that the Lord said to Moses and to the Israelites, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, it's predicated on a previous passage where the verbiage is the exact same. These are the things that I want you to say. So as you hear, I am the Lord your God, don't make any idols, don't take my name in vain. What you are hearing resonate with all of that is chapter 19. Because you are a treasured possession. You are a kingdom of priests. You are a holy nation. Do you realize the value and the depth of intimacy that you and I have? So when you read chapter 20, it's predicated on chapter 19. Those two come together in that sense. And then this is why I mentioned uh, that I think this is a second exodus. Because later in chapter 19, right before we get to chapter 20, which is the Ten Commandments, the scriptures say Moses brought the people out of the camp to go and meet God. The implication face to face. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. You can imagine that that phraseology brought the people out. Does that sound familiar? It's the exact same verbiage that God uses when he speaks to the Israelites in Exodus chapter 6. I will bring you out of Egypt. So like God brought them out of Egypt, there's a whole new bringing out. There's a whole new way of thinking about coming forth. And they come out of the camp to meet God. And when they meet God, they are reminded of who they are the intimacy, the covenant, and the relationship that they have with the creator of the universe. That is what is happening with the giving of these Ten Commandments. And again, it's, it's, I have to say Ten Commandments because that's, that's what's happening at chapter 20 when God is saying all of these things. And what I love about 
the verbiage here about being brought out. Because for those of you who are with us in the Exodus series, you may recall that we talked about the coming out of Exodus as a birthing story. Remember the blood on the lintels and passing through blood and through water. Uh, The plagues being birth pains, pushing the people out. So there's also, the, the whole story begins with midwives at the very beginning of the story. So the whole narrative is set up as a birthing narrative. And if that's the case then, and the Israelites were birthed as a new nation, as a new people out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of bondage, then what is happening here at the giving of the Ten Commandments, at the giving of these words, these sayings of the covenant with the people at Mount Sinai? In other words, the people are being born again, again. There's a whole new birthing that happens. There's a whole new life that is emerging. And one that isn't just about what you do or do not do. That was the life of Egypt and of Pharaoh and of oppression and of autocracy. And that was that life. This is a whole different kind of life. This is a life of deep, intimate relationship with the creator of the universe. A covenant like no other covenant that exists in this world. And then he gives them these words, these sayings to say, let's describe what kind of relationship this is. You could even call these sayings marriage vows. At the foot of the mountain where Moses goes up, God comes down, they recite their vows to one another. Some have suggested this. I don't know if you've been following the news. This is big in our household. For those of you who are unfamiliar We're going to try to proselytize you into becoming huge fans. By the way, more people watched the Women's World Cup than the NBA final, I heard. So this is really big news in America, you know, because America doesn't like soccer. So anyway, this was especially important because I remember four years ago, uh, you know, sitting in front of my TV when, when the U.S. loses on penalty kicks to Japan. So it was like a rematch four years later, for those of you who've been following us. It's like, oh, heart-wrenching, heartbreaking. So this is a great celebration. The, there's been all sorts of news reports about the National Women's League, uh, the, the, this team, the national team, being celebrated all over America now, which has never happened before uh, for a, a female uh, sporting team. They made the cover of Sports Illustrated. This is just big news. It was just a lot of fun. Uh, final score was 5-2. to two. I'm sure that's really important for you guys to know. <laughs> and what, what's fascinating about this in, in conjunction with this particular talk is this celebration, this great aliveness, this beautiful thing that is happening, at least in the sports world, this thing where you get to throw up a trophy and have you know, confetti being thrown and people celebrate what is happening is predicated on something. It's predicated upon Boundaries, lines, it's predicated on an agreement for how we're going to play this game. It's predicated upon, here's what we are going to agree to be and to do together. And some have suggested that 19 and 20, as well as other passages in the scriptures, formulate, no doubt, formulate some do's and don'ts, as we've mentioned before. But to see them purely as do's and don'ts is to miss the entire purpose of why they exist. They exist because they form the playing area for how this beautiful game is going to be played, for how life is going to be lived, for how our relationship is going to happen, for how the intimacy of God and man between God and people is going to thrive in this world, so much so 
that when people come to understand the beautiful nature of God's love and his grace and the community that can surround every single person on the face of this planet because of that love and grace, what do we do? We can celebrate that. Because all those other things, all those things that exist could possibly get in the way of that beautiful, intimate relationship. This is what we're going for. This is what God is desiring. A beautiful celebration of the intimacy between you and him. That's that covenant. And at 19, when he says he's bringing the people out, I kind of think of it as bringing the people out of camp, bringing the people out of legalism, moralism, the static, I have to do's, I have to do's, I have to do's. Bringing them out of the shame and the condemnation of, if I don't do this, then somehow I'm outside of God's will or God's relationship. All of those things, that's what he's bringing them out of. That is what they are being born again, again, to. When the covenant is broken, it's not about rules. And I know this sounds pithy in some ways. It truly is about this beautiful, intimate relationship. So I want, to think, I want you to think about this again. When you think about this, when you do something wrong, when you happen to falter, the question is simply this. What are you most afraid of? What is the thing, remember I asked, what is the thing that wells up within you? Is it shame? Is it punishment? Is it, oh my gosh, I'm in trouble? In the context of covenant and relationship, in the context of what God is trying to do with his people, ultimately the thing that God is trying to communicate with us is that a violation of these boundaries, a violation of this beautiful thing means that you have decided to no longer be in relationship. And this is the thing. This is the thing that we are mostly concerned about. This is the thing that is at the heart of these commandments. Dear Lord, I don't want to do anything that will hinder or spurn or dishonor this beautiful, loving, intimate relationship that you have initiated with us. That is what we want. That is what we desire. That is what God is pushing for. So what is the thing that we're most afraid of when we break rules, when we sin, when we do all that stuff? And again, we need to have some conversations about the definitions of all those terms. Ultimately, what we are, hopefully what we are understanding to be at the base of the issue is I don't want to do anything that jeopardizes my intimacy and my closeness with this God. And amazingly, God's love and his grace is such that even when we do, (laughs) his pursuit is even further after us. Um, That's what's so amazing about this grace. The last thing that's important about these Ten Commandments and about this, and we'll end here, is that these particular passages, unlike other covenants in the ancient Near East, which depend purely on written contracts about what you do and do not do, these particular passages are attending to the interior. They're attending to what is going on inside of you. In other words, God's relationship, his intimacy, his covenant with you isn't contingent upon what you do or do not do with your hands, with your mouth. It's really contingent upon what happens here. What happens here. Uh, Billings Learned Hand was a judge in the United States Court of Appeals in the Second Circuit in Chicago, I believe it was. Uh, My understanding from doing a little research is he is one of the most quoted judges 
not on the Supreme Court. So he was a judicial philosopher, and he had all sorts of different writings. And I thought this quote was really important because when we're talking about a second exodus, when we're talking about liberty, when we're talking about being brought out of something that hinders us from that intimacy and relationship with God, I thought this was a very apropos quote. Liberty lies in the hearts of men and women when it dies there. And here's the key. No constitution, no law, no court can save it. Do you hear that? Liberty is ultimately about this. And no constitution, no, God could have given us 20 commandments, 100 commandments. If we only think about it in moral codes and moral laws, then why aren't there a thousand of them? Why? It's not about that. It's about liberty that lives here. No constitution, no law, no court can save it. No constitution, no law, no court can even do much to help it. The spirit of liberty is the spirit which is not too sure that it is right. The spirit of liberty is the spirit which seeks to understand the minds of other men and women. The spirit of liberty is the spirit which weighs their interests alongside, alongside its own without bias. I might paraphrase it in this particular way. The spirit of liberty, according to Exodus 19 and 20, is for us to seek desperately to understand the deep intimacy and relationship this God desires and to humble ourselves and to bring our interest right along the side of God's interest in this world. And if we can view that, if we can view the Ten Commandments and all the other codes and all the other laws and all the other stipulations through those lenses, I believe that could provide for you, for us, for all of us, for this world, a second exodus. A freedom out of physical, liber physical bondage and physical slavery, and now a freedom out of moralistic, therapeutic deism, a freedom out of the shame and condemnation that comes with breaking rules and breaking laws, a liberation that comes from an intimacy of knowing this God in deep, passionate, covenantal relationship with each and every one of us. God, I thank you for this time. I thank you for this word uh, that you have given to us. And if anything that I've said has been confusing, convoluted, or misguided, I pray that your spirit would just simply guide us towards a greater understanding of your truth and your word. Thank you so much for this community. Thank you for the people here. We bless you and honor you. And ultimately, in our hearts and in our minds, God, may our relationship with you be deepened and strengthened and transformed once again. We pray in your name. Amen.